Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, a writer at Gay Star News, and this week I am joined by my two co-hosts. I'm Hwai Chen Bu, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in New York. I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in D.C. And this is a larger-than-life episode... I don't know what that's supposed to mean. We have it's two... the Infinity War of episodes. <laughs> I mean, it's a big episode, so we needed a big roundtable. Yeah, of we got a big races. ensemble, you might say. Ooh, nice. So we are joined by two guests this week. We have uh, fellow podcaster Joe Yao, and she is from the For the Plot podcast, which I have plugged here before. It's a great one. Thank you. <laughs> and we also have reliable friend of the pod, Mike Sillingall, here to chat with us. Thank you for having me. Of course. And it's Mike Sullingo, formerly of Washington, D.C., now living in New York City. Hey. Yeah. The greatest yeah. city in the I'm, world. I'm the only one left. <laughs> <laughs> there, must always be, there must always be a Dobbs in D.C. <laughs> Speaking of... You might have guessed what our episode is this week, and some of you may be surprised because yeah, uh, we talked oh, about it before. We talked about it before, and a lot we of us trash talked um, it before. Yes, trash talked it. Yes. We have trash talked it. <laughs> we have not had the kindest words for Game of Thrones, yeah. but this is a show and um, a franchise that holds a special place in all of our hearts because um, you, we might have uh, told you guys this, but this is how we all became friends: uh, Willoughby, Anya, and I. Yeah, uh, we met in uh, in French. Uh, no, no, uh, cinema, and cinema, 70s. cinema studies. Yeah, what was it? Oh, seventies, seventies <laughs> class. Well, there's seventies film class. Seventies film class. Hollywood in the new Hollywood in the seventies. Yeah, that's title of it. College was a long time ago. <laughs> but um, we met it was in that class six years ago. Yes. Yeah. And it was during the height of Game of Thrones mania. Yeah. Um, maybe less so than it is now, but it was still like the height of Game of Thrones mania. It was so big, yeah. It was huge. And we were all Season mega three. fans of this HBO franchise. And uh, we just kind of bonded and became great friends by talking about this series and how much we loved it and the characters. But um, some of you might have heard of this. We kind of all fell out of love with it because of some very... Uh, mm, Controversial decisions. Not great. Not, yeah, great. not great decisions that this not series great, made. Um, not great, Bob. Not great, Benioff. Our sworn enemies, Benioff and D and D. D and D. But um, now that Game of Thrones is uh, rounding out its final season, it's it's finally making its way towards the epic battle of of the White Walkers and Westeros. We decided to do just a kind of um, almost like a farewell to it, maybe a, a in memoriam, <laughs> something like something that. Something like that. Post mortem, a pre post mortem. <laughs> yeah, post mortem. Just like to the show um, and this this franchise that we used to love so much, and like why it really does still hold a special place in our hearts. It does, yeah. yeah. And our two guests this week, um, they both still watch the show, so they're going to bring a slightly different perspective to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to start out with the trio that you know, and our relationship to Game of Thrones. Um, I'm going to start off. Yeah. So I started off watching the first season when it aired on HBO and loved it. Um, as soon as, like, even, like, halfway through the first season, I picked up the books and I immediately tore through those. And I finished 
the books that we have um, before season two aired. So I have now become like a big book fan and I still love the books. If we ever get more, I will be first in line to buy them. I'm still like so invested in this story. Um, and you know, now that I'm no longer watching, um, which I'll get into, I still follow people on Tumblr. My friends still watch it. I still hear about it. I will watch scenes on YouTube of Sansa because I am still very invested in her future. Um, I still love the Starks, like, a lot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, around the fifth season, uh, specifically, they started making some storytelling decisions that I did not love. Um, and it was sort of a three-punch Thing that happened to me and I just had been burned too many times by them that I could not go back and I, I won't and it was the Sansa and Ramsay storyline. It was Stannis Oof. Baratheon who is my true king of Westeros and the fact that they ruined his character completely. He like, was completely out of character. Like mm-hmm. He would never hurt his daughter. Ugh. And then also the fate of my unicorn cannibal wolf child Rickon Stark. <laughs> um, that I, I can. I was not watching at that point, but I heard what happened, and I was like, "Thank God." Um, so we're gonna have a little story time. Ht, do you know how Rickon dies in the show? I do not. I thought he just kind of disappeared. No, Rickon. <laughs> if only Rickon has disappeared in the books. He's on like Cannibal Island, but Davos is going to rescue him. <laughs> so Rickon is gonna be kicking, and he's gonna be a feral pup yes. in the books. Yeah. In the show, Rickon's kicking. Rickon's kicking with Shaggy Dog. Um, in the show, guess who gets a hold of him? Who? Ramsey Bolton. Oh. Uh-huh. Hmm. So there is this wonderful scene where Jon Snow meets up with Ramsey Bolton in this big field, and they're, like, separated by, like, lots of space, and Rickon is with Ramsey, and Ramsey's like, oh, like, have your little brother back. Like, I'm gonna reunite some Starks. And, uh, he sends Rickon off running towards Jon, and Jon starts running towards Rickon. You're going to be like this emotional embrace, this reunion. Ah, I see where this is going. And then uh, Ramsey shoots my poor little baby pup with arrows and just like kills him right before he can get to John. Mm. Mm. Yup. So that happened. And I was like, I can never go back. They've ruined the Martells. They've done this. I can't. I, I, it hurt too much. Yeah. But I still love those goddamn Starks. Yeah. Yep. Uh... Rickon died so he could do the voice in Kubo and the Two Strings. So that's him. That Rickon. Really? That was Rickon. That's him. Wow, he did a good job. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So it's great. He actor. went off to do better things. That's true. <laughs> that's Kubo true. Uh, Ray Fiennes is in that movie. Kubo's great. Yes. Yeah. Side note: I just need you guys yeah. to know that Ray Fiennes is in that movie. <laughs> Important. Yeah. So Rickon will be in our hearts. Yes. He will. So, um, so yeah, that's why I stopped. And HD, I hope you can live with those nightmares. It's horrifying. Uh, uh yeah. That's that sounds typical of what Game of Thrones has become now, which is just yes. like an exercise in sadism and also just like out of character fan fiction. Yeah, and so is that why you stopped watching? Yes. Mostly? I stopped watching for similar reasons to you. It was um kind of a three punch for me as well, but di- different things, but a lot of them, the main one revolving around Sansa Stark and her treatment. And just like the unnecessary detour that she takes to Ramsey Bolton and like that need for them to show the entire like sadistic 
personality of him on screen. What I liked about the books was that it was all off screen. Yeah. Like we hear about it later and it's like it's more horrific how our imaginations kind of like populate that. And that's like one of the brilliance of the books. Yeah. Nope. The show is just like we are gonna have a whole season of torture porn. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not here for this, but we'll see where this is going. And then like they did the rape of Sansa Stark and that was it for me. And it's frustrating because now everyone loves her. Yeah. And like I watched some scenes from the current season to see what a badass she is, and she is, and everyone's like finally giving her the respect she should she deserves. But I'm like, all right, but like you guys were all shitting on her from day one, and like D and D didn't treat her too much better. So it's like, okay, so now you're getting behind Sansa yeah. Stark when yep. we should have been rooting for her since day one. Yep. And I really hate mm-hmm. that it took for her to like undergo a sexual assault for her like character arc because that's so for people to be like she's strong. It's such a frequent and like tired trope to use for shows where like some character goes through sexual assault and that's how they suddenly become like yeah worthy of our sympathy yeah. or like a badass or, like that's why they have a personality change it's such an easy and tired just like shortcut yeah and um that was like the final straw for me before that it was uh the the Jamie and Cersei reunion and um I remember like in the books I was actually kind of looking forward to this because it was like this weird grotesque perverse. And they're like child's corpse. Yeah. And I, like, I kind of like that because it was very like emblematic of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the show, they chose to do it as rape. And then they refused to acknowledge that it was rape. And it was something that was really important to me because Jamie's whole character um, and the reason that he killed the Mad King was because he was an idealist, idealistic knight who couldn't stand the, the sounds of like Elia Martell being raped by the Mad King every night. And the fact that, like, he basically, like, sexually assaulted his sister was something that, like, was some, was such a character assassination of Jamie Lannister. Yes. And, um, so that, it was that, the, just, like, absence of Arianne Martell completely. Ugh, Arianne. One of the best characters in the book, for anyone who doesn't know. And then Sansa Stark, and that was just, like, that was a straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I was like, I'm out. This show broke my heart too many times, and, um... I'm just gonna show up every now and then to watch some clips of Sansa and Arya. Right. Root for the Stark sisters from afar. Exactly. And the funny thing is, when I first started watching the show and reading the books, I was, you know, like an Arya Stark fan. I actually kind of got into it because of Arya and Gendry scenes that I had seen on Twitter. Of course. You did. <laughs> of course. And I was like, wow, they're there cute. There it is. There I'm it is. To, like, so what actually happened is that I didn't want to watch the show before I'd read the books. So what I did was I actually read the books, the first book. Um, and I caught up with that, and then I watched the first season, and then I, like, basically caught up so that I was reading the book simultaneously with the season that was happening. I was, I'm a little weird, but by that time, I was, like, deep into it. I was reading Arya and Gendry fanfiction. Yeah, you were. But then, like, as I went on and progressed with the book, Sansa became, like, my favorite character, and it frustrated me more and more that people, like, the audience was shitting her on, on her all the time, and that the show, too, like, didn't really appreciate exactly the nuance and, like, the complexity of our character, and they just kind of kept trying to pigeonhole all of their female characters into, like, either the whore or the, mar- the or the mother, and I hated that they just kind of took all the complexity out of their female characters. So that was something that, was, like, that irked me from the beginning, and then, you know, everything happened and progressed as it did, and I was just like, I'm done with this show. No Lady Stoneheart. I just remembered that. No Lady Stoneheart. Uh, Catelyn Stark deserves justice. Yes. And you may write us right off our complaints as being like, it's not like the books. So we don't want to watch anymore. Like, I understand the difference between books and a yes. show. I actually like a lot of the choices that the show made um, to change the books. Like, the 
Tywin and Arya scenes, some of my favorite scenes in the entire series. Um, But it's more than that. It feels like it's just like a disservice to all the characters that I love so much. And like, the reason that I I left the show is because I love the characters, which is why it's hard for me to just like completely disassociate from the show because I still love those characters. Same. And yeah, um, exactly. that's why we're here now. Yeah. But Willoughby, I want to know what your like experience was with Game of Thrones and why you kind of left it. So I started watching the show a month before season two aired because all of my friends in college, namely you guys, were talking about it. And I was like, oh, I should watch this thing. So I like binged the first season. I like started reading the first book and then season two premiered. And I watched that, and I was like, oh, cool. I don't know what anyone's saying. I don't know who these names are, but it's pretty to look at. And then I sort of just kept watching it, and season three happened, and then we met Anya, and we became friends with her, and I was like, oh, cool. So this show means a lot to a lot of people. That's great. Season four happened, and then choices were being made on the show that were not great. And I was like, like I didn't know too much. Of, I hadn't read most of the books at that point. I still haven't. I've only read the first three. So, like... Jamie comes back. I didn't know, like, that whole, their reunion, I didn't realize was consensual in the book. I didn't realize that Daenerys' uh, relationship with uh, Jason Momoa, Khal Drogo, her, their first time was also consensual in the book, even though it was right in the TV show. Um, and it was it's just sort of, and then San, Sansa's whole uh, plot arc in season five, where she gets married off to Ramsay Bolton, and then he rapes her, and it's just those three instances again a three a three punch like of like actual decisions made by the the creative team on the tv show to change consensual sex or in this case a plot that doesn't even exist in the books to alter these plot lines for these women to uh like to give these characters sexual assault plot lines that are just so unnecessary and so ridiculous that i couldn't keep watching like it was just it was against like everything i stood for i was like this is not great i don't want to watch what a show that actively changes the decisions that the author made to make these characters have worse off plot lines even though in the books of j uh, not jrr george rr martin those books are still pretty like you know in term they're not great either in terms of it's like there's a lot of stuff that goes wrong with a lot of characters and like it's not all, it's not all perfect either. But I, he justifies it in ways that these these creatives, the writers on the TV show, have not. They have not apologized. They've not talked about the decisions. Like they're just, they always try to be like, well, you know, spoilers. And I'm like, no, you can't. You have to talk about this. Is like, why did you make these changes? That's weird. It's weird. Like even if it's, even if you are like, well, the books and tv shows are different it's weird that they did that it is like just think about it for a moment and you realize that it's not like from these two dudes come all these decisions to change and they're they have the they have even if even if it was like a writer who changed it they have the power to say yes or no and they said yes and it's weird it's weird so that's why i stopped watching so on that note Mike and Joe. <laughs> I feel like this the way Defend that we're shitting, yourselves. <laughs> I feel like the way that we're shitting on so this much. and then like, so why do you guys have no like values? <laughs> <laughs> why are you guys moral and giving into this show? Well, in my defense, I did quit the show for a full season after season five for the you know, like I quit it for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I had a big problem with the rape scenes with Cersei and Jamie and Sansa as well. I also reached a point where by the finale, when they sacrificed Shireen um, oh, to yeah. the Lord mm-hmm. of Light, it was just, I, it was awful, but I also felt so numb to it because so many terrible things had happened on screen that season. And it was that thing of, I'm watching a child being burned alive and I don't feel anything. And that was the point where I was like, I need to, I need to stop because as soon as I become deadened inside by a piece of media, I need to step away. Side note, Stannis in the books (laughs) makes sure his army knows that Shireen must be protected at all costs because if anything happens to him, that she is next in line because he believes that she will inherit his throne. So Stannis would never... And D&D sullied his name, and I just... Yeah, if I thought that Jamie Lannister went through a character assassination, and he's, like, still kind of okay now, despite, like, the sexual assault thing, um, I feel worse for you, because you love Stannis, and, like, he went through the worst character assassination. He really did, because they made him out to be an ambitious villain, Mm -hmm. whereas the only reason he's trying to get the throne in the books is because he literally sees it as his duty, because legally... He is next in line because he mm-hmm. knows that Jamie and Cersei's kids are bastards and they're not Rob Roberts, and so he's only doing it out of a sense of duty. Yeah, he's not ambitious. Yeah. but D and D was like, oh look, a villain. Yeah, that's my yeah. Well, I'm not gonna try to shit on it any more than it is, but sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I I had to like clear my my, <laughs> my boy's name. Yes, but yes, the Shireen stuff was awful. Yeah. Yeah. Continue. Um, but yeah, I it really started coalescing and coming back together for me once the Starks started reuniting, mm-hmm. and I'm still trash yeah. for them. So yeah. I definitely wanted to see them finally teaming up again and bringing their collective experiences together to do good for Westeros. Yeah. Um, because I think in my heart of hearts, I really want to see... I mean, we'll get into what we hope for the end of the yeah. show. But, like, in my heart of hearts, I really want the Starks to prevail. And um, I want their general ethos and means of, like, going about their lives to be the way that leadership goes forward in the country and, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things play out. And so you just want to see the Starks succeed. That's, yeah. And so you're watching yeah. out of this hope that yeah. you don't get burned again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very naive of me. It's very stupid of me. But that's, I'm doing it. That's kind of, like, why I feel conflicted going into this, like, this last season because I still care about all these characters and I'm kind mm-hmm. of, I'm still invested somewhat in, like, what they're doing. But I feel like I can't go into the show or, like, be interested in the show without, like, you know, kind of betraying what the reason that I like stopped in the first place and then people being like oh you watch Game of Thrones and then being really excited about everything I just don't want to like shit on everyone's parade right you know right and like there are still good reasons to watch the show there are I mean like I don't blame anyone who still watches the show I get it it's just that like because they mean so much to me like I fell in love with these characters so much that like these like these choices hurt me a lot and yeah. I just I couldn't we stopped because we cared too much. We did. <laughs> we still uh, do. Valid yeah. yeah um, so, Mike. Oh, okay. <laughs> so this should be talking about your valid emotional. Okay. Reason. <laughs> We're not here to attack you, by the way. We're this not. It's all just like this is all in no, fun. No, yeah. no, no. These are all. We're valid. drinking wine like Cersei, so yeah. <laughs> things are happening. Things are being said. No, these are all valid reasons for you know why you fell in love with the series and why you felt burned and why it's hard to like get back into that. I mean, mm-hmm. these are core passion ideas that you have about following these characters, and so pretty much my angle. Me being me <laughs> comes from 
an exact opposite perspective. Yeah. So let me just like start off with some context about how I got into the series. So, you know, I'm your typical, you know, nerdy little fanboy when it comes to epic fantasy is that I am drawn by the more superficial elements of the genre. So that kind of imaginative world building, the uh, levels of de- the level of detail that is going into one creating not just the world but the cultures that define the individual characters and how all these little micro elements operate in this grand macro level schemes. I'm getting really fanboy right now because we love just it. be fanboy as much because we just went to the Tolkien Museum, so I still got that back. We in, are we yeah. are we are full in like epic fantasy mindset right now. Yeah. So like even like if you compare season one to what they've done with a much much more substantial budget in later seasons, like I was still hooked into those you know more superficial elements and like that's not to say that i didn't you know find connection with those characters because they had great characters they had different characters they weren't archetypes that you'd find in your usual medieval fantasy they were you know qualitatively distinct as a way to put it but everyone was different everyone had their own insecurities everyone had their foibles everyone had you know their personal family backdrop it felt like i was watching say the sopranos but it was set in Middle Earth, and that's how yeah. it was built, and I thought that was different. So I actually did fall off the bandwagon for the same reasons that you did, because, you know, there's only so much, you know, depravity disguised as titillating spectacle that one can consume, and you know how, you know, all the trashy, you know, genre films and exploitation films I've seen. It's like the difference between that and what they were doing in season five was like that's only like an hour and a half, you know, momentary, you know, outlaw challenging cinema. Whereas this is okay, now this is the crux of the story. It's like you watch Game of Thrones because it's like we're doing things they would never do in Lord of the Rings. Mm. And I'm just like, okay, come on, that's juvenile, that's lazy. And, and they're still passing themselves off as like prestige TV, too. Yeah. Right, like Game of Thrones is not prestige. Yeah. Yeah, no. Because they have a big budget. It's yeah. like, yeah. Just, just accept that you're, good, that you're popcorn TV that people love to watch because, yeah. you know, like, I'm being honest about those are the elements that I was drawn to it. Yeah. And so I fell off the bandwagon for those same reasons because it's like, I'm not even being outraged because, like, what you were talking about when, uh, Standis had to, you know, throw Shireen into the fire. It's like, you don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if I don't feel anything, what's the point of even engaging with the series? Exactly. And this is where you fall into disappointment in Mike, because then I, <laughs> two episodes after the initial uh, rape of Sansa, yeah. they did Hard Home. In which the last 15 minutes are some of the coolest 15 minutes of the entire (laughs) series. And so this is where I get into like how I evaluate the content, the art that I consume, is that I really like to think holistically about like also a lot of the behind the scenes work. Because, okay, they, I mean, at its strongest in terms of writing and characters, they, Game of Thrones will give you characters that you're invested in, that you want to follow their trajectory, that you want to see them make decisions that are relevant to what the character was written at and not what they did in season five. Mm. But (laughs) at the same time, I'm also thinking about, you know, all the people behind the scenes who put all that work into creating the costumes, creating the sets, the stunt team work, like in later seasons. I mean, yeah, they got a big budget, but that's not just like, wasted spectacle i mean there is some imaginative constructing of just some of those set pieces whether they're just like dragon sequences large battles armies of the undead i mean yes that is popcorn spectacle i'll be the first to admit that 
But you they don't make it look good. You don't get that spectacle on any other TV show. Yeah. So and that's, barely on t- on movies too. Yeah, yeah, like even in like a lot of movies, um, they'll be like, okay, we're building up to this really climatic sequence, but it doesn't exactly pay off. No. And it's like. Even, like, so I had issues with season seven in that it was nothing but just, like, shallow spectacle. But, like, when they had those, like, momentous, like, oh, my God, did you see that water cooler moments? It just, like, organically came out of nowhere. And I was like, this is why the masses, like, still watch the show. Because, I mean, I will agree 100% with, like, some of the haphazard writing just like the inane character decision making that you know David and Dan who I think are rather mediocre have made mm-hmm. but you know I like to think holistically where they succeed in creating those moments and you know me I have those FOMO as fuck moments <laughs> in yeah. life yeah. and so that's why I've kept up with the series you know and this is like my MO on every Sunday evening like I'm gonna do it tomorrow night I'm just gonna pour myself a glass of red wine mm-hmm. I'll flip on HBO I'm just gonna watch I'm going to laugh at some moments that make me laugh. I'm going to say, oh, shit, to some moments. And I carry on. And I carry on. Okay. And, and plus, I'm, my favorite character is Dabo Seaworth. And yes! As, Thank uh, you! And as, Dabo. Long, and as long as they don't screw around with Davos, I'm fine. That's the benefit of having a like large boy, ensemble. Boy. We, we all have our favorites among the ensemble. It's sad that y'all favorites got screwed over. <laughs> but, you know... Davos is still trucking. Yeah. Still trucking. God bless my onion knife. We like him. Yeah. We love Davos. We all we all stand Davos. We do. That's really well put, Mike. And yes. I think that's like a lot of reasons that a lot of ca- more casual viewers of Game of Thrones enjoy it so much. Yeah. And I will say the one thing about like D&D that they succeeded in doing is that they put together an amazing team and an amazing yes. cast. I mean, we are not trying to like, everyone who works on the show is clearly giving it their all and mm-hmm. like mad respect to all of them. I have nothing against like... The writers, the editors, the costume creator, you know, the cast, like, they're all doing a wonderful job. It's, I have a problem with, like, the decision from the top. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, green lighting decisions that I think are ultimately harmful and ultimately lose sight of what made this show special to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, like, the, the dragons were great and they always are great and I wouldn't want to lose them, but, like... The first season for me worked so well because like the characters were so compelling and yeah. they've kind of lost them a bit in the spectacle. Exactly. Yeah. And like I'll definitely agree to that. And so like that's why my watching habit, like the way that I just described where I'll just pour a glass of wine and just like carelessly watch it, that's entirely different from say seasons one to three right. when I was like, Oh my god, what's happening with the characters? So and like I would talk to other people about it. And it's like I don't necessarily do that nowadays. Like I mean, like, a lot of my coworkers are still big fans, my family is still big fans, and they'll talk about, what do you think this character will do? And, you know, I'll engage in the, with them in that, but it's not, like, the same as seasons one to three when I would be, like, you know... Really invested. I'm gonna... This is my hill to die on. <laughs> Little keyboard warrior. <laughs> so, yeah. so, basically, yeah, like, I mean, I'll be the first to admit I don't watch the series for any sense of moral transaction. Yeah. But, you know... I live in multitudes. <laughs> okay, so this is this is kind of a question for everyone, but like, so Mike, you love the spectacle, mm-hmm. so we are all pro dragon. Dragons are badass; they mm-hmm. look really cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. but are you guys pro Danny? I need to <laughs> let's get it. Let's get into the character. I need to talk about your guys' feelings oh. about uh, Danielle Targaryen. Danielle Targaryen, <laughs> the most white girl name ever. Because that's what she is. Danny, She's the most white girl. Danny is. The epitome of white feminism, like mm. white savior feminism. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like she thinks she's girl bossism, but she doesn't have like 
a critical lick of thought to really think about. Take a step back and think about like how your badass decisions are actually affecting people. Right. She does not. She's only like, I am your hero. I am your queen. And she like, yeah. doesn't actually consider like and the consequences always, of her decisions. And she always has like those moments that she like really leans into that are just like that powerful, badass moments. And the show also doubles down on that. And I feel like the show until now wasn't aware that like Danny isn't, you know, that all-powerful queen. Yeah. Girl tries too hard. Girl yeah. tries too hard. She does. I think, so Joe, it was either you or our friend Megan. Um, so in, it happened in the show, but it was also in the book. So Danny in the books is not in Westeros yet. She is still across the sea. Mm. Um, but she's in this place, Marine, which she isn't in the show. Mm-hmm. And she like kind of takes it over and there's like conflicts and everything. And she kind of, it's like her testing out her, her ruling her powers. But so it was either you, Joe, or our friend Megan compared mm-hmm. it to Bush and Iraq. And it was like one of the mm-hmm. best comparisons I've ever heard. That sounds like Megan. I think yeah. it was Megan, but I think she told both of us. But yes. like that Danny was the Bush and Marine, like it's her Iraq and that yeah. she like tries to like exert this power She's, and it yeah. completely blows up in her well, face. Yeah. She's so a much. neocon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> so, you so, think of- so much of what she does is driven by her ego like she has such a paper thin white feminist fragility that comes across so often where it's just like oh you crossed me I can't stand for that mm-hmm. you know and there is a certain level of I understand you need to be a leader to some extent and you need to make sure that there are certain people who toe the line but then there's also just like you need to work out when to be lenient towards people and when you're actually supposed to be ruling and what your people need from you as opposed to what you've decided for them. Stannis treated Davos. He just, he cut off his fingers for thievery. Like, Stannis, but then he, he hired him as He his had right proportional hand. standards of justice. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what were you going to say? I just need to, I'm oh. always going to get in a word about Stannis. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, so like, what was I going to say? Okay, so my issue with Danny, and I'm just going on my Danielle. weird, shallow meme kind of <laughs> reference, Danielle Targaryen, <laughs> she is the epitome of, can I speak to your manager? Yeah. <laughs> that is Danielle Targaryen. That's who she yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. She is peak, can I speak to your manager because my dragons are not, you know, doing well. You know, the food is they not. They are unsatisfied. You do not have enough sheep. Yeah, that's that's actually a plot point in the first episode of the new season. Danny's yeah. complaining that there's a, like a lack of sheep for her dragons to eat. Sorry, we didn't prepare for your sheep. <laughs> like, ugh. Um, Willoughby, do you have similar thoughts about Danielle Targaryen? I always thought uh, she was overcome with her own self-importance to a fault, to the point where she was like, "Well, I'm I'm a Targaryen," and everyone's like. You need to learn how to lead. Like this is not like just burning cities is not great for your for ruling. You need to have a place to rule. You can't just like once when they're when someone does something wrong, you can't just feed them to your dragons because you're because you have dragons. Like that's that's not that's not that's not justice. Just because you have here, here we go. Just because you have nuclear weapons doesn't mean that you can exert justice over other countries. Yes, yes, that was so good. So, Willoughby, we've, um, I want to hear from you because I feel like we've talked for a while. <laughs> so, like, we all know, so we know HT and Joe are, like, the Stark stands, mm-hmm. and I am the Stannis stan, and 
Uh, Mike is both the spectacle and the Davo Seaworth stand. <laughs> yeah. So, Willoughby, like, who are some of your favorites? Who, like, when you were watching, like, who were the characters you really connected with and, like, that you fell in love with? Eddard Stark. So, oh, you know. Of course! Oh, Eddard! Yeah, so it was sort of like that, where it's like, oh, well, my favorite character's gone. I guess I should keep watching because he has kids. Uh, no, the Starks have always been, like, my number one with a bullet in terms of, like, w- what I appreciate about the show. Because I'm a I'm a good guy, liker. I like the good guys. And the Starks, for all their, for, for all their like, you know, for all the morally gray shit that goes on in this universe, the Starks are still, like, the people that you kind of want to look up to in, in this universe universe because they're just they're like trying to get by they're like in the north and they're just they just need everyone to chill like literally like they're all about winter is coming and they're all like my my i think i sort of relate to that because i'm from the north of america i'm from connecticut it gets snowy up there my family has a saying called safety is no accident which basically means that all of your decisions like have you have to take into account like the decisions behind any any of your actions because safety is literally no accident that's on on purpose thing and so i always took that winter is coming to sort of be similar to that in terms of like you have to prepare for the worst um and so when the starks are all separated that's when i'm like least interested in the show because it does fuel their plot lines in terms of like, oh, they all go through some shit and they come back together and they're more powerful. And that's all all in well great. But like I want them to be in the same house and I want them to all serve up the same justice and I want all and I want them to defeat the climate change. Like they're they're the most important part of Westeros at this point because the wall has fallen and from from what I've seen and they're the they're the first line of attack besides the Night Watch. So like they have to get their shit together. Um and I really hope that uh, they come out on top, and we'll we'll get into theories as to how the the show ends. But like, Johnny Boy is in charge, and that's all good and well, great. Even though he's having sex with his aunt, cool beans. Um, but for the most part, Sansa and Arya are great, and Jon's cool too, I guess. I want the dogs to come back. The dogs need to come back. Ghost needs to show up. The direwolves are the are the best part of the show. That's what it is. That's who they are. They're the wolves. They're the wolves. They're the pack. They're going to defeat the bad guys, the Night King, all that jazz. The Starks, they're great. The Starks are great. Yeah. And it's it's so appropriate that the house emblem is the dire wolf because they always do better as a pack. Mm -hmm. The Starks do. So it's, you know, it... You're right. You're so right in terms yeah. of how much better the show works and how much better their storylines work when they are all in the same place. Yeah. The lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Yes. That's kind of why oh, I'm... Oh, baby Rickon. Yeah. That's why I'm, like, kind of want to... I'm kind of invested in, like, this new latest episode and, like, the new season because it does, mm-hmm. ta- like, feed into my wishes to see the Starks back together again. Yeah. And I have been watching a lot of clips from that premiere episode just because it has, like... My Arya and Gendry reunion, mm-hmm. Sansa being a boss. Arya defending Sansa to John. defending yes. Sansa. And, like, everyone finally realizing how just, like, competent and how deserving that Sansa Stark is of, like, power and the throne because not only is she the smartest, she's also the most compassionate. She's learned from, like, 
the best, and yet she's used that to not only her advantage, but to like bring forth her own sort of like way of ruling. She's a survivor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. she exactly. But um, I will say one thing I'm annoyed at is that um, even though people were on Sansa's side when like they had Sansa and Danny had like their whole tense exchange of like what do dragons eat anyways, and Danny's like whatever they want and like a lot of people were like hailing that as like oh that's such a burn and i'm like that's not a burn it's her like refusing to answer the and question it's like a legitimate question and then Sansa. later on she compl- danny complains about not her dragons not having enough to eat so obviously mm-hmm. like yeah something sansa saying something right at least as a leader sansa's actually thinking about like exactly. the actual tangible consequences but and, like I, the yeah. mundane things you have to like know about and yeah. do well, also, as a leader. Just the people she's responsible for. Because mm-hmm. she mentioned, we set aside enough food for our people. We mm-hmm. didn't account for dragons and yeah. entire army. And, yeah. you know. She's Danny, a responsible leader. Right. And she is. Danny didn't bring any provisions. Yeah. <laughs> she just, she like, just assumed that everyone... everyone to, like, bend the knee to her and give them all her stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Not great. But it's because Johnny say... Boy did it. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, I feel like maybe... I the show is finally coming around to like realizing that Danny is not like this all powerful boss ass. I bitch. hope so. Because like yeah, like we have that exchange and like well that's that was my problem for like a lot of the show is that like Danny's moments of like power and impact and badassness was like the sh- the something that the show really leaned into and that's why she became like such an icon in the face of the series despite her character's flaws like not really being well, I would even like prevalent. three I would even argue that Cersei Lannister is more of a genuine badass mm-hmm. in terms yes. of like actually having a satisfying payoff honestly, on her like, own ambitions ugh. than Danny. Cersei is honestly great. I love, I love Cersei. Cersei. Yeah, I will say that too. I think that she's more of a tragic um character. Right, sorry. <laughs> There's she's more of a tragic character than anything because she is just like her own warped sense of like misogyny and like power is because she is a, a, a result of societal like warping her first. Like let's not kid around here. She's not like sleeping with her brother because she loves him. She's sleeping with her mm-hmm. brother because she wants to be him. Mm-hmm. Because she wants to have the power and the privilege that Jamie has as a white man in mm-hmm. Westeros. Exactly. So but um something that Mike actually touched on that I want to sort of comment on and open to like the table. I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you were talking about like the water cooler moments of this show and how like this has become such a widespread thing. And um, this was something that, like, I've seen a lot of think pieces on, how, like, Game of Thrones is kind of that last event TV series. It's that last water cooler show. And it made me a little bit nostalgic for it because I do remember, like, being part of, like, that. Those discussions every Monday. And and I do feel like that is still kind of, like, the overwhelming, like, impact of the series is that it still has, holds that power for a lot of people. So, um, what do you guys think about that? Like, do you, what do you think that, like, this is the last bastion of, like, the golden age of TV in terms of just, like, people talking about it and people, like, still all watching it at the same time? Mm. I think it's become I more... think... Oh. Oh. <laughs> go ahead, oh, no. Go ahead. Yeah. You're the guest. You're the guest. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think because audiences are becoming increasingly fragmented because there's so much content out there by its nature, discussions are changing because it's very rare for everyone to watch the same thing. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, you know, because it it, lead, it paves the way for more, quote-unquote, niche stories to get told, like stories about people of color or historical stories that we've not seen before. And those get to get made and 
find their audience rather than trying to find mass appeal mm. with the biggest audience possible. And it, I think there is value in having very specific discussions with people who are very passionate about one specific thing. Hmm. For me, the thing that was very frustrating about Game of Thrones, I'm not a hipster at all. Like, <laughs> I, I love when people start loving the thing that I love, you mm-hmm. know? Like, I love having more people involved in the conversation and having people more engaged. The thing that was frustrating about Game of Thrones for me was I felt as though the quality of the show was directly inverse to its popularity. Mm. So as soon as it became... Once it reached a fever pitch in pop culture and everyone was discussing it, that was when I least wanted to talk about it, Mm. you know? And it became ubiquitous and inescapable in a way that really made me resent the show. Yeah. And I think it wouldn't have become that way if it weren't for the fact that everyone was talking about it. Yeah. You know? And talking about it in a way where no one was engaging with it very critically and it wasn't the way that I was consuming the show and it just, like, the big, big ideological problems I had with it, a lot of people weren't bringing up or caring about. Mm -hmm. Honestly, the red wedding really changed a lot of that dynamic because Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it became the what shocking angle are they going to pull? I remember it's like everyone was paying attention specifically to episode nine, Mm -hmm. not for like any like character trajectory or payoff on a certain story arc, you know, why we initially engaged in the show. We wanted to know what was the big moment. And it's like, I mean, I fell into that trap. I'm obviously still watching the show because of that trap. I'm still Mm. stuck in said trap. Mm -hmm. But, like, the Red Wedding was, like, the huge turning point, like, Mm. that I noticed in how the culture discussed Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. I was like, I think the Red Wedding reaction videos on YouTube, after that, like, we saw reaction videos to almost everything because Mm. everyone wanted to be, like, capturing the moment that, you know, they had that... Uh, immediate reaction to something that really caught them off guard. And it's like, that could be fun, you know? I mean, I'm not gonna, like, totally uh, scorn that. But, like, as you were talking, like, the popularity really grew as the quality of the show, like, for better or worse, depending on who you ask, did change Mm -hmm. a lot. And that became, you know, their focus going forward. And it's funny because I feel like I should have, I feel like the Red Wedding was kind of like a warning sign that I maybe didn't listen to enough because the Red Wedding kind of started that sort of like, the Red Wedding happens in the book. Yeah. But the show deals with it in this sort of shock violence way that's um, sort of lined with misogyny. I mean, the fact that, first off, the fact that, like, they changed the character who Rob fell in love with. Talia, yeah. Um, or, like, Talisa. Talisa, sorry. And she's a totally different character in the book, so I don't know why they felt the need to change that. And then, in the show, they make it a point explicitly to show Talisa being stabbed in the stomach while she's pregnant, which mm-hmm. was, like, a very, like, violently misogynistic choice to make, and they did not have to. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that, of course, like, they killed Catelyn but didn't bring her back like she came back in the books. And so I feel like that should have been a warning sign to me that D&D, like, did not really have, like, the best intentions at heart and that they didn't care about context or, um, you know, how things came across and, like, the violence against women and, like, what this looks like and how this might feel to women. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that should have been a sign for me. But, I mean, I kept watching and, I mean, like, that moment really did, like Mike said, like, change a lot of things so yeah yeah, I completely agree even Talisa's death was about Rob's reaction rather than her last dying moments how she maybe felt about it as you know 
she was finishing up her arc on the show. She became um, a plot device and not a character. Yeah. yeah, similar to Sansa's rape, it was all about Theon mm-hmm. and not Sansa. Right, and not, let's not forget about um, the character who named, whose name I forgot, Tyrion's... Uh, Shay. 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 I loved Shay. So Shay is really interesting because in the show she got a much better arc um, than her book character. Yes. And was such a much more interesting character until her final moments in which they basically like reverted to her book character and kind of made her this really flat like gold digging whore. And it just felt like very like I don't know, cheap. It didn't feel appropriate mm-hmm. for the character that they established. Who had like developed a friendship with Sansa yeah. and Yeah, like if you're gonna change the character, then you gotta think like, okay, if we're gonna kill off this character, then it should be done in a way that's true to the character that you created for mm-hmm. that context. Yes. You can't just all of a sudden decide, okay, now we're gonna do it exactly like the book. You can't just pick and choose like that. And that's yeah. what will be said, is that they're being weird about it because you know, they obviously went for that kind of execution, like literally and figuratively speaking, mm-hmm. because they thought it would be that shocking moment mm-hmm. that yeah. you know, people were gravitating towards. And I was like, no, come on, be reasonable. Yeah. Be- but as asking too much. So what were you gonna say, Willoughby? I was gonna I was gonna talk about the monoculture in terms of like it was sort of interesting that when Game of Thrones premiered, there was Walking Dead premiered at the same time, which is still going on. That's another whole bag of bees to talk about in terms of like the problematic elements of that show. There's also the um at the at the same time there was Mad Men, there was Breaking Bad, there's there's all these like the the peak TV golden age like transition TV shows that lasted for eight years that are were in indel- were like everyone watched them on Sunday nights talked about them on Monday mornings and then and slowly but surely those big shows all had their great series finales Mad Men's was great uh, Breaking Bad's was epic uh, Walking Dead I think just has like two viewers now I'm not sure I haven't I've only watched the first three three and a half episodes. Three and a half se- seasons, I should say. So I'm always like, I, I don't know who still watches Walking Dead. I know a lot of people are like had the same issues that, in terms of like shocking deaths and issues with the show that people were like, this is the final straw for me in terms of Walking Dead. And I was like, I feel your pain, brother, in terms of like, I understand what Game of Thrones. And so Game of Thrones is sort of that last bastion of the monoculture te- television show where everyone's sort of like sitting down and watching it. And, I, and it's one of those things where I think that there's going to be more interesting streaming shows to watch. And maybe some, maybe, maybe the next, maybe, uh, it, maybe HBO will come up with the next one. They tried it with Westworld and it didn't succeed as well, as well as they wanted to, because that, the, the, it's so, so buck wild. And then, um, I guess in other and there's really like no other like Netflix has tried it with House of Cards and Orange is the New Black in the mid 2010s where they were like the binge model became the monoculture where people were like oh you got to binge this TV show everyone's talking about it like you got to get to the final episode so that you could talk about it with your friends whereas with Game of Thrones it was like you got to talk you got to watch the next episode to talk it with your friends the next day so like there are changing modes in terms of like an, what what streaming has affected the monoculture because it used to be that because there were so few show original shows on streaming networks that you could watch it and have like a monoculture system with it where everyone watches it over the weekend and then on that monday or that tuesday you talk about the whole season 
But as Netflix has shown, they don't care so much about their their big event television shows anymore. Barring barring Beyonce, we can get into Beyonce a little bit because that is a monoculture moment. Um, but they they have so many season ones and season twos of their shows that it, and Hulu is the same and Amazon Prime like there's like what Joe was saying earlier like there's so much more content now that it's really hard to keep up with in terms of trying to create a monoculture because every week there's a new season of television to watch you really can't keep up with that and I think that that's a problem with peak TV or maybe not a problem but like a change with t- television is this whole system of like new week new episode new season like you can't you have to like pick and choose what you're gonna like follow and if only two other people are watching that television show those are the people you're going to talk to about it and that obviously is different than how for the past 50 years of television we've been doing television so i think it's fascinating and i think it's different and i think that we can't judge it yet because it's so new and different so um, I guess, well, maybe we'll, that's an interesting point. And <laughs> I wonder if we'll miss the end of the monoculture like that, the, mono, the TV monoculture. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I guess it's too hard to predict at this point. Uh, speaking of things that we want to predict, though. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue, HG. <laughs> um, what do you guys hope or um, think will happen with the end of Game of Thrones? Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, all right, mine's going to be, I guess, less of a prediction and more of a I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's going to be very different because, um, like, in the books, like, I want, like, Arian Martell to succeed, but she doesn't <laughs> exist here. Um, I do predict that the show will give Sansa a, uh, a good ending, I suppose, because I think they've realized how much fans like her mm-hmm. and that, like, she is clearly a character people want to succeed. So I think that in some way she will succeed. And that's what I want, ultimately. A lot of people say Sansa for Queen, but I hesitated that because I'm not sure if Sansa wants that herself. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if she wants to w- rule Westeros or if, you know, she should because, like, she deserves some peace. Yeah. Um, I would like her to be, like, Queen of the North. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want uh, Davos to be her hand... And, like, Brienne to be her, like, sword master and Arya to be her spy. Yes. Um, someone said Bran for hand, but I just, I need Davos to, like, get some. <laughs> Bran can go and be a tree. Yeah, he can be a tree. And also Davos, like, honestly, Davos is the best hand. He yeah. is. Like, there's no one better than Davos, and I want him to get a good ending. Yeah. Bran could be her royal. maester, just because he can see everything. He could be the yeah. maester, yeah. yeah. Or a tree. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just gonna interrupt. We have not discussed how effing weird Bran Stark has gone over the course I of mean, the series. I'm here for it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he's like that. Every he's family needs a weird kid. And rec. <laughs> yeah. Oh so yeah, so I just want I want Sansa to succeed, and I want the good characters to surround her like Brienne and Davos. Mm. Very wishful thinking. I'm not I sure know. if that's where the show will go. No, it's where my heart is, though. Joe, what about you? Uh, I guess mine is also more of a hope than an actual prediction, but I hope, uh, like Anya says, that Sansa gets her due and that I kind of, I actually would like Westeros to be broken up into a bunch of little kingdoms mm. rather than one person trying to yeah, rule. Like a democracy? Yeah. <laughs> more like a democracy. Or a feudal state. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it's just 
very clearly the North is its own place. Even the Vale can be on its own. Mm. Um, King's Landing is a totally different world. Dorne already is too. Like Dorne believes in a primogeniture society, mm-hmm. and like yeah. so they have their own rules. Like, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that just makes more sense if everyone even survives um, winter, uh, which is like I'm. Not, I wouldn't put it past. Uh, Benny Off and Weiss to just be like, no, winter takes over, everyone dies. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's a Even George has mis- has pretty much made that joke. Is like, you're all yeah. expecting that everyone dies. It's like, nah. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> um, what, a, what about you, Mike? Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ arrives in Westeros. <laughs> all fighting ceases among the seven kingdoms as they recognize the Messiah. And... <laughs> It becomes modern day. Oh um, That's a very like Battle Star Galactic. Yeah. Okay, I'm keeping I'm keeping it in tune with the Easter holiday. All right. That's right. Um, okay. Uh, all jokes aside, Judas, I had some bourbon no. just now. Anyway, all jokes aside, um, first, what I want versus what I predict. Okay, let let me start with where I think the show is gonna go. I think George is like. At least in George's notes, they gave it David and Dan, and hopefully they abide by it. I think they are smart enough not to give us, you know, the tragic, sad ending because that's what people expect. I think it's going to be a bittersweet finale. Mm-hmm. I think some favorites will, you know, kick the bucket. Some in a blaze of glory that will make us remember them. Some of our other faves will still stay. Whoever, you know, takes. Okay, I think they will keep the, you know, the one true king. I think it will be Jon Snow. Whether or not Danny, you know, accepts her role as being the queen, maybe she humbles herself. I don't know. I don't expect her to die. Maybe if she dies. If anything, maybe she dies. If anything, <laughs> if anything, Danielle probably was, <laughs> if anything, Danielle probably goes back to Essos because that is her true home, and she restarts New Valeria, mm. and she and she decides that's what's best for her and her people because the Dothraki and the uh, who are the eunuchs again? The Unsullied? Mm-hmm. Those are her people, more so than the Westerosi. And I think the big character development for her in this season, realistically, is that she recognizes that, that she has people that still love her, even though she's white savory about it, mm-hmm. that who still love her, and her obligation is to them and not to people that she thinks she should rule. So I think it'll be an alliance, like that kind of alliance between King John, Queen Danny. John gives more political liberties to all the different kingdoms so that, you know, they're not fighting. Maybe they adopt what England did during the end of the Middle Ages, um, a constitutional monarchy in which you have, I guess, a legislative body with representatives from all the different kingdoms as a check on the ruler. And that, you know, he recognizes that Sansa really is a better manager of the North and that Sansa should rule as, like, call her queen in the North, you know, or just call her the the governor of the, the governess of the North. <laughs> and, you know, uh, my boy, Sir Davos Seaworth, stays in the North because he sees all these, you know orphans called the starks and he and he adopts them is he batman now yes he he adopts his nicer version of batman he adopts his brave and strong daughter sansa his feisty but also strong daughter Arya, his weird ass son (laughs) (laughs) um you know john can be the cousin i guess so and 
it would be bittersweet. Mm-hmm. I do not predict that you know it's going to end as tragic or as sad as as the show has been character caricaturized as. I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. But <laughs> too I, much bourbon. <laughs> I I do think it will be a bittersweet finale, and that's pretty much how I think it plays out. <laughs> yeah. All right, Willoughby, what about you? I think it's going to be Mars Attacks. I think it's going to be the Night King sweeps in, and some people make it out alive and some people don't, because like, the show's never strayed away from killing off major characters. So I definitely think that like most of the Starks that are alive will survive, and then they'll have to rebuild Westeros in terms of like like post-winter like spring comes, and they're like, I guess we have to rebuild now. Like, I think that there's so much going on with Winter and the Night King that I think that they can't deny that some shit's going to go down. They can't, they, it's not, the Night King's not just going to stop at Winterfell. Like, he's going to, he's going to go all the way down. Um, and so I think that, yeah, there's definitely going to be a reckoning, but I also think that it will be a, like, powerful ending in terms of, like, the characters that we've grown to love will have, like, a nice, solid ending maybe with John on the throne and then uh, what's uh, Sansa as queen in the North, but also like dealing with the aftermath of a major terrorist attack, like the night King. Yeah. We're, we're really pulling up those, those Bush uh, comparisons, <laughs> aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my, um, my predictions is kind of a mix of some of these. Um, I also think that at the end, we won't have anyone ruling the iron throne, but it'll be, um, Westeros divided into the Seven Kingdoms, mm-hmm. and that Sansa will be the Queen in the North as she should be. Mm-hmm. But I think that both John and Art and um, and Danny will die, mm-hmm. um, or at least Danny will die by the hand of John because I'm digging into Ooh. the weeds here. The Azora High Prophecy, um, in which the the chosen the king the prince who would be the prince who is prophesied the prince who is prophesied, mm-hmm. aka Azora High. Um, the first prince to defeat the White Walkers uh, was prophesied to have forged his sword in the chest, in the heart of his beloved. Mm-hmm. And that was the sword that would defeat the White Walkers. John gonna have to kill Danny by like stabbing her yeah. with his sword. I feel like maybe she'll fall in battle. She'll and fall in battle. To... He has to kill her. Mm-hmm. He will forge the sword that will defeat the Night King defeat the Night King, and, uh, I don't know, maybe die, maybe maybe just, like, be, you know, live and uh, live his quiet life. But yeah. um, I, I do kind of want to bring up George R. R. Martin's, um, I think it's like a blog post, in which he said, he, he kind of described vaguely his planned ending would be wet the Iron Throne either covered in snow or covered in dust. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, definitely Westeros is devastated, but in the end it will rebuild, but it will be built as seven separate kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Mike, you wanted to say something. Now that you mentioned the prophecy of Azora's eye, what if the prince prophesies is not John? What if it's, now hear me out, someone who has a record of killing mad rulers who get in the way of greater good? <laughs> Jamie Lannister! What if, what if we get the Queen Slayer? Oh, <laughs> oh, interesting. Only if Brienne gets to be queen with him, though. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And a totally platonic relationship, because that's how they roll. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about that. 
Hey, they could platonically, you know, bathe like they did in that one episode. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like a I'm like a low key Brienne Jamie shipper because Same. I think it's like a sweet, okay, almost they, pure relationship. They can do their stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, a lot of them just be like staring, staring longingly at each other with respect. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the way Nikolay Kostrovaldo talks about their relationship is the way he plays it is that. Brienne is the one person in his life that he's actually loved in a very pure way that's not been tied to obligation or any twisted other things from like their childhood. It, she is the first woman that he's ever loved in a completely selfless way. So, oh, yeah. um, I mean, whether that's platonic or romantic, I, I really support that ship in concept and mm-hmm. also right. in canon. Yeah. So. See, t- poor Tormund will have his heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Apparently, that part was improvised by the actor who plays Tormund. Oh, yeah, the, that's the, cute. Yeah, I like that because I who wouldn't look like look at that like Bri- look at Brienne like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I think that's a good way to wrap up our Game of Thrones discussion. Our very complex, mm-hmm. our very um, sort of mixed you know, views and thoughts about Game of Thrones. We had a which healthy discussion. We did. Yeah. A show and a story that, you know, still holds a special place in our heart, but we have our criticisms of mm. and um, can come away with, like, still having, like, fond memories of this show. And hopefully looking forward to George R. R. Martin's next book, uh, The Winds of Winter. Maybe it'll come out someday. <sighs> God willing. <laughs> Maybe before the decade. No, it'll be the next decade, like, 2020s. Yeah. 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 Where's your album at, George? <laughs> I wonder if we'll be president by then. <laughs> he'll come out. I bet he'll come out with another volume of like the history of Westeros before uh, um, he comes out with the Winds of Winter. Duncan Egg Part Two. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. All right. So, um, since we have uh, two guests on this week, we are giving you the floor for our really likes. Uh, so, for every week, we talk about what we really like in pop culture and life. Um, so, Joe, why don't you start us off? What do you really like this week? Oh, well, first off, it's such an honor to be on this podcast. Like, I really, really like this podcast. I oh. genuinely do. I listen to you guys, and I love that you all have different perspectives on the same things. And even if it's something they don't like, you have really thoughtful insights, and you engage with it in a way that is not just the surface level, uh, I didn't like it. Um, so I, I always enjoy listening to all of your different takes on pop culture stuff. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah. Uh, oh, thanks. And, <laughs> yeah, and additionally, I am really, really into this telenovela on Netflix called Velvet. Um, it stars Miguel Angel uh, Silvestre, who is one of the actors on Sense8. He plays Lido uh, on that show. And on Velvet, he is the heir to this fashion empire, essentially, that's failing. Uh, because his father died and left behind all this debt, and he's trying to save the store and brands that his father established and his childhood best friend and love of his life is a seamstress who is an aspiring designer and so they have this like huge love affair but they can't be together because of circumstances and um, I started it for the drama with their love story Um, and then I really stuck with it because 
the seamstress Anna, her friendships with all the other seamstresses in the store and even her supervisor and all the different relationships between the people are so warming and it's so affirming and I love that they all love each other so much and they lift each other up so much. And it's one of those things where at 4.30 in the morning, I was like crying over female friendships. Yes. <laughs> you know, so it was, um, it was really heartening. It's a great watch and it's already done. I think there's like a spinoff show, but the main show finished after four seasons. So, and I, I, I looked up spoilers cause I'm bad about that. <laughs> and I was like, it does have a happy ending. So, okay. So this is Velvet on yes. Netflix. Yes. All four seasons. Mm-hmm. Get ready to binge. Yeah, get ready to binge. All yeah. right. Um, so, Mike, what is your really like this week? Yeah, so after thinking long and hard about it, I remembered, hey, um, <laughs> I did something really cool today with my fellow co-host sitting with me right now. So today we actually went to the Morgan Library in Manhattan. The Morgan Library, it's a private library that pretty much houses the collections of J.P. Morgan. And so aside from, you know, his private art and private book collection, they had a special exhibit specifically dedicated to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. So this was a really cool exhibit in that we got to see original manuscripts, letters that Tolkien had wrote that really informed his creative process behind creating his legendarium, the stories of Middle Earth. We saw some, you know, autobiographical notes, you know, pictures of his family and how the deaths of his father and mother at a really young age really informed his imagination and how that intensified during the events of World War One. The loss of his best friends in combat, which um, historically is linked to the kinds of relationships and the scarring that the hobbits themselves experience, except that Tolkien wanted to give them, you know, a happier ending by keeping them alive and intact, but still forever shaped by the experience. Was there a uh, term for PTSD at the time of World War, like during Tolkien's time? I mean, I don't know if like, the DSM manual was even like existent at the time or what like clinical psychology was saying about the effects of PTSD. I don't think that actually became a subject until after maybe the mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there was those were clearly like formative events that really shaped, you know, how Tolkien just like viewed the world around him and how he wanted to channel that through his works. And it was really fascinating and just... I think I was more also just as equally amazed by the labor that he put into creating this, you know, universe because, I mean, knowing Tolkien's background, like, they have a lot of documents, you know, around his Oxford Dawn days, and, you know, he was a professor in language, and so Tolkien's whole thing is that language is the root of myth, the root of how culture and society emerges, so, you know, he spent his time creating fictional languages, you know, elvish and whatnot and from those languages he comes up with the cultures that he's trying to create and you know just those working documents you know looking how tolkien in his spare time would grab like a sheet of paper and just scrawl on and say you know what this dialect and form is connected with how they associate with this geographical range and i'm gonna put that geographical range on a map and all of a sudden that becomes its own world and there are people that inhabit that world and you know it's really amazing i think our favorite document it was like on a random piece of parchment he just like carved out the breaking of the fellowship at the end of fellowship of the ring it was neatly organized by which characters go off in what directions and you know what events they're going to be subjected to because of that separation that 
I mean, he spent two decades planning this saga, so he really put his time and effort into it. And there's a little cute thing where he writes friends under <laughs> the hobbits being kidnapped by the orcs and Gandalf and Aragorn. He's like, make sure that they're still friends. That's how they're connected. Yeah. So, you know, for a big Tolkien fanatic like myself, this was such a joy to visit. Yeah. Mike and his prince tattoo. <laughs> it is Tolkien's monogram. <laughs> Yeah, it really made me appreciate what a work of genius Lord of the Rings was. Because I, um, I, I liked the series up, up until then, but like this really, seeing the work that went into it was just like eye-opening. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated it, Mike, and it was really interesting and really fun to go to. Thank you, Boychon. <laughs> <laughs> and it's cool to connect the dots. Like, um, it, it was notable to me when I read the books and watched the series that the Fellowship survives. Everyone mm-hmm. in it really gets out, not unscathed, but they live to the end and I feel like that had to be fueled in part by the fact that he fought and Tolkien fought in World War One and, and lost most lost. of his and lost, yeah. Yeah, lost yeah. Most of It's the anti-Game of Thrones tying it all back in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's that little Amazon show that's supposed to come out. So. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> um, so, Willoughby, what is your really yes. like for this week? Um, it's a podcast. It's called This Had Oscar Buzz. It's a podcast hosted by Joe Reed and Chris File, who are two cr- film critics. And they go in and they uh, talk about films that used to have Oscar buzz. Um, so it's not the films that were, you know, they may have won some Golden Globes because the Golden Globes give awards to anybody. Um, but these are movies like Secretariat or The Tourist or Crazy Stupid Love or uh, Seven Pounds, The Fifth Estate. Uh, Hyde Park on Hudson, Serena, uh, 1492 Conquest of Paradise, uh, Mona Lisa's Smile. A lot of these movies and like Where the Wild Things Are and uh, The Ice Storm and Love and Other Drugs and Suburbicon and a bunch of others. So basically movies that when they came out, either like when the trailer came out or when the movie came out, people on the Internet or journalists or whoever, you know, people were just talking about like, oh, maybe this can win some Oscars or like people liked it, but it didn't get any Oscar love. So it's one of these like podcasts that looks at Oscars, but from a different angle, sort of like the unsung Oscars and the oversung films that like, you know, people were just like this, this is so good. Why didn't it get Oscars or this is so bad. Why did people think it was going to get Oscars? It's one of those things where you can only really look at, look at it in hindsight. uh, Because like, uh, I know it's just uh, very interesting to to see you know what movies when when the like the buzz is high and then years later you're like oh yeah that had an Oscar buzz didn't it and then you then they go into and talk about like why the movie works why the film doesn't work for Oscar um, and it's really great um, and they also do this like fun little game at the end of each movie where they try and pick an actor associated with the film or some sort of six degrees of Kevin Bacon away from the film, but they talk about the IMDb known for, for that, for whatever actor they pick. So they talk about what they're best known for on IMDb because they have a little section on their page where like the four movies, but the algorithm algorithm is so skewed that it's like a fun game to try and guess which, which uh, movies like these actors are known for on IMDb. And sometimes it's wild. Sometimes it's on the money. So that's like a little game they play at the end of each episode. But most of the episode is devoted to these movies that used to have Oscar buzz. So the podcast is called, this had Oscar buzz. 
So a movie that I had forgotten existed until you mentioned it just now was 1492, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, directed by Ridley Scott, and uh, yeah. stars Gerard Depardieu as Christopher Columbus, and has the most insane tagline I've ever seen. I think it's, um, what was it again? It's uh, Like centuries before space exploration, yeah. <laughs> there was another voyage. <laughs> Yep. And it's like Gerard Depardieu, he's wielding a sword like he's in Game of Thrones. It's like, like what? What is like, happening? You know, the great heroic saga. You guys have to watch the trailer for this. I'll send it I'll send it after the recording. The trailer for this movie is legitimately insane. It's so <laughs> Alright. I cannot wait. It's at the top of my watch list. <laughs> Speaking of watch lists, um, so my I really like this week is a. Uh, some, it's something I watch, but also just kind of um, movies that I want to watch. I recently subscribed to the Criterion Channel, which is um, a new streaming service that kind of picked up where Filmstruck left off. I never subscribed to Filmstruck, which was kind of like this big collection that curated a lot of classic films, and I regretted that once it uh, shuttered down. Um, but now Criterion Channel is up and has just like this vast array of classic films that I'm really excited to dive into, especially now that I have a column that highlights a lot of foreign films and I want to like reach back into some of the archives because it's like Netflix only offers so much, you know, they only really, they don't have any movies before the 80s. So um, I subscribed to Criterion Channel, which launched earlier this month, I think like April 12th or something. And uh, the first movie that I watched on it was uh, Tokyo Story. So this is a film directed by Yasujiro Ozu and something that I was really interested in diving into because um, it is at the top of Japanese critics um, like best you know international films of all time and it's fascinated me because it, this was based like on a poll that BBC did recently of uh, film critics of like best international movies and um, a lot of a lot of Western critics like all of them put like Akira Kurosawa at the top of their list, Seven Samurai, Rashomon. But um, what was interesting to me was that Japanese critics, um, for them, like Kurosawa was like nowhere near the top 10. Instead, they had Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. And like this disparity was really fascinating to me. I, I've talked about this with Mike before, but it, I think it had something to do with like uh, post-war sentiments, to, uh, Japanese critics kind of, uh, not being happy with Kurosawa's more like Western sort of um, uh, catering or tendencies, uh, but yeah, Sujiro Ozu's films definitely like tapped into that Japanese cultural identity. Um, but his films are just like there's so much more than that, I think, uh, and like I can see why they don't necessarily appeal to a lot of Western cinephiles because his films are much slower; they're a lot more meditative but they're incredibly beautiful and deeply human, Tokyo Story being like very indicative of, of that. So uh, Tokyo Story was released in 1953, and it follows an elderly couple who live in like the sleepy seaside town and decide to travel to Tokyo to visit their uh, two grown children and the widow of their, of their third dead son. Um, and they find that in this rapidly industrialized, industrializing post-war Japan that life is kind of leaving them behind and their children are not as they have long known them as. And it's this just rich tapestry of these characters and of life that just feels incredibly um, rich and complex and layered. 
And it's uh, very much aided by Ozu's filmmaking style, which is very still. Like, it's just like remarkable how still this film is. Because he tends to just kind of put his camera down and let things play out. And uh, there's like a poetry or like a beauty in the moments in between that he finds. And uh, it's, it's often because like he'll just leave the camera on his, his actor's face and you'll see like this just array of emotions that pass through and it's all very subtle but something that kind of really draws you in. And um, it's like in those smaller moments but also like like the buildup of those smaller moments that, that creates this rich tapestry. And it reminded me a lot of last year's um, Roma directed by Alfonso Cuaron which you know felt so intimate and yet so universal because you see like this one small story that you realize is just like a part of like this all these other great stories and that's what it felt Tokyo story feels like it's just like you're being invited into like this one story that just like feels just like it's part of like a greater richer life mm. and um I was I will say actually I talked about this on uh, my other my works podcast slash film daily um, and I learned there that um, during a lot of film reviewers critics uh, reviews of Roma they actually compared it to Tokyo Story so that comparison is there if you like Roma you will like Tokyo Story and uh, actually I will I will say if you like uh, for example Hero Hero Hirokazu Kareda's Shoplifters or his whole oeuvre, you also mm -hmm. like Tokyo Story. It's something very similar to that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited to dive into the Criterion channel and just kind of expand my, um, my knowledge and my, uh, um, the, the classic films that I watch. And uh, it's a great, it's a great um, source for that, resource for that. Mike, would you like to say something? Just to add on to that, in terms of quality Japanese si cinema, there are seven Godzilla movies on the <laughs> Oh my god. Just uh, FYI. Alright. <laughs> Vital information. Yes. <laughs> Michael Bay has two films in the Criterion. Hell yeah! Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> and The Rock. <laughs> Alright. Anya, what is your really like for this week? So, you guys might not have known this before, but I really love musicals. What? No way. Oh my god. <laughs> is this... Do we know... Did we know this? This is I, brand new information. I'm not sure if you knew this. <laughs> uh, so I really I think love we musicals. gotta go to the... We gotta, we, we gotta investigate this. We gotta appoint a special counsel. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, I do. And FX currently has a new show called Fosse Verdon. It is already in... It's two episodes in, and it is already appointment television for me. It's already one of my favorite things of the year. I love it so much. And this has to do with musicals, because the story, or the series, is about Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. Um, and Bob Fosse is one of the greatest directors and choreographers of musicals. He directed things like uh, Chicago, Cabaret, Pippin. He directed the movie adaptation of Cabaret and won the Oscar for it. Um, and Gwen Verdon is a dancer and choreographer in her own right, and they were also married for a time. And this series explores both their relationship, um, meeting each other, falling in love, um, having a relationship where they were kind of each other's creative muses and how that affected their relationship to, you know, the falling apart of their marriage and following that. Um, Sam Rockwell stars in the series as Bob Fosse and uh, Michelle Williams is Gwen Verdon, and they are both wonderful. The choreography scenes between them 
are electric. Like, the tension, that sexual chemistry, it is tangible. It just, like, comes off the screen. Um, and you might recognize some names who are behind the camera on this series. Uh, Tommy Kale is the director of it, and he is also the director of Hamilton, an American musical. <laughs> I like the subtitle there. Never heard um, of it. And the creator of Hamilton, Lin Manuel Miranda, you may have heard of him, is an executive. Never heard of him. Yeah, I, yeah, he's a he's a little known guy. Um, he is an executive producing Fosse Verdon. Oh. Um, so you know, I think this is someone something that people can enjoy even if they're not musical fans because it is very much just a character drama. Um, but if you are, you will get a lot out of it because there are a lot of like Easter eggs, references. Um, I'm getting a kick out of everything. One of the I went to a high school that was known for musical theater, and one of my friends who I was in high school with and did like choir and theater with had like a little bit part in the first episode, and I was just like, "What? Wow! <laughs> it was crazy." Um, so yeah, Fosse Verdon on FX, um, and that is our episode for the week. Talked about a lot of things. If you guys have anything you want to chat with us about the many things we discussed, such as Game of Thrones or J.R. Tolkien or the telenovela Velvet on Netflix, mm -hmm. uh, the podcast, this had Oscar buys, uh, Fosse Verdon, um, <laughs> or, hold on, I'm going to get it. Oh my god, I had all of them, and 1492. now... 1492. You gotta roll. You got it. 1492. <laughs> 1492. Please. All the, all the Godzilla movies on Criterion. <laughs> and also, Tokyo Story on yeah. the Criterion Collection. Yeah. Come chat with us, and where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us all on Facebook if you search for us there, at Falcon Podcast on Twitter. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can rate, review, subscribe, and listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And where can they find all you guys on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find... Uh... You can find me at HTranBooey. You can find me at Anya Crittenton. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Yao. And you can find me at msullingo91. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. And thank you, Joe and Mike, for guesting on this podcast. You're yeah, welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So humble. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>